This is the View from Apollo podcast, an ongoing conversation on alternative investing, economics, and the trends shaping up financial markets. As the cost of capital remains high and the Federal Reserve continues to battle an inflation rate that has stubbornly stayed above its 2% annual target, investors have much to consider going into 2024. In this episode, Apollo partner Philip Mintz shares his views on current conditions and where he sees opportunities in this still volatile environment. You know, I, I think that what I look for are assets that are idiosyncratic or not necessarily macroeconomically tied directly to GDP growth, and they give you some form of protection. In a wide-ranging conversation with Chief Economist Torsten Slock, Philip also discusses his views on the relative valuations of credit, equity, and real estate, why he's intrigued by real estate investments in the Sun Belt and other non-gateway cities, and what portfolio allocations might look like in the new year. So, let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Torsten Slock. Chief Economist at Apollo, and you're listening to the View from Apollo podcast. My guest today is Philip Mintz. Philip is a partner at Apollo, and he has recently taken on the role of Vice Chairman of Global Real Estate. He comes to the role with a deep experience and understanding of global real estate and funding markets that I think provides a really interesting and important perspective for our conversation today. In addition, Philip's new role comes with an expanded focus on strategy, especially in the wealth-oriented market. Philip, Congrats on the new role, and thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Torsen. It's great to be here. So there's a lot going on in uh, global markets today, Philip. So to give us a starting point, I just would like to present a short overview of the macro situation that I hope we both can agree on and use as a basis for our discussion. So maybe we hopefully will have also some basis for some debate But the broader backdrop for what's going on at the moment, of course, is that inflation continues to still be too high. The latest data on core CPI is that inflation is around 4%. And remember, the Fed's target is that inflation should be 2 So as a result of that, the Federal Reserve continues to communicate that interest rates are high and will continue to be high well into 2024. So therefore, the backdrop for what's going on in markets and the backdrop of what's going on in public markets and private markets continues to be that we have higher costs of capital. And where we sit right now, it's probably going to take at least another seven, eight months before the Fed begins to cut interest rates. But the conclusion still is with higher cost of capital, I still think that this sets the stage for our conversation and thinking about what's happening in markets at the moment and how should we be thinking as investors if the cost of capital is going to remain elevated for the foreseeable future. So looking at the current situation through your new lens as a strategist, how are you thinking about allocating capital between equity and credit with a backdrop of interest rates remaining high? Well, Torsten, I really appreciate the overview. And I think you're just about spot on. Given that picture in the landscape that you've laid out, I think that there are actually interesting opportunities in credit right now, particularly compared to other asset classes and, and particularly compared to real estate equity. I think that what's happened is to a large extent, credit has repriced much quicker than equity. And so from a risk-adjusted basis, credit looks much better than equity right now, broadly speaking. Okay. And can you take a little bit deeper into that? So where do you see the biggest opportunities in credit right now? Yeah, I think what's interesting in credit right now is, is actually a fewfold. One, I like private credit, broadly speaking, even better than real estate equity as of today. 
And certainly within real estate, I like real estate credit better than I like real estate equity. And let me explain a little bit. Because credit has priced so substantially and so quickly, base rates and spreads provide really nice rates of return in what's happened in the marketplace, a little bit because of debanking and the challenges that a lot of the money center banks and regional banks have. It's left this unique window for large origination to be able to generate really attractive risk adjusted returns. The irony is on the equity side, what's happened in real estate in particular is that the public real estate companies have traded substantially off, but the private real estate really hasn't. When you look at an underwriting between real estate equity and real estate credit, for example, real estate credit, in my opinion, far surpasses the types of risk adjusted returns you can get from the equity. To be even more specific, what you're seeing is loan to value levels that are going down, quality of counterparties going up. And that is really, really interesting. You also have inflation protection to the extent that you do floating rate, shorter duration type of loans. All of that leads to unleveraged rates of returns on the credit that look really, really attractive compared to equity. And just turning to private credit more generally, it's a similar theme. Private credit is an entire spectrum, I believe, from very small micro private credit all the way up to large institutional quality private credit. And what I think you're seeing now, because of that same debanking phenomenon, is where the most interesting areas are at both extremes of the barbell. At the very large institutional quality private credit, you see enormous advantages being driven by size, scale, and origination capabilities. And then frankly, at the very small end, you can see sort of private hard money lenders earning very good risk adjusted returns because they have competitive advantages, both in origination and then in asset managing. I think the part of the market that's going to be most problematic is kind of the middle where you have lesser quality counterparties, more capital chasing. So I think it's really important where you play within the particular markets. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit more about that. I mean, so within private credit, do you see particular opportunities in specific segments or in specific industries? I think what you want to look for is durability. You know, I, I think that you have to be very thoughtful and very cautious. You know, a lot of private credit, a lot of credit has been done in less proven industries with much more volatile EBITDA or cash flow generation. And I think now one has to have a pretty defensive mindset. And to the extent that you can get good risk adjusted returns with large, well-capitalized, more durable, long-term historic cash flow companies, you have to take that advantage. The pricing is not that discriminating in the sense that you can generate really nice rates of return to take that counterparty risk, I think you ought to take it. The same thing holds true in real estate to the extent that you can get really solid counterparties, really credible sponsors, if you will, with institutional quality real estate in the most durable asset classes, I would take it. I suspect you're going to ask me about office and other asset classes going down the line here. And, and I think yeah. it's a perfect example. I would avoid office and go into the sort of the more durable cash flow generating assets for sure in this environment where it appears to me that one of the other things among all the things that you laid out, Torsen, that the Fed is trying to do is they're trying to sort of impede asset valuations broadly, whether it's used cars, whether it's real estate. And so one has to be kind of thoughtful around that, not just immediate cash flow risk, but duration and the asset value risk that people are taking. No, absolutely. I mean, the Fed really is trying to slow the economy down, and that does indeed come with the risk that asset prices upside is more limited, at least in the process when they do that. To that, let's also talk about your thoughts on cap size. 
how are you thinking about investing in middle market versus large corporation debt thesis? And what are your views on origination and deal flow at the moment? Like I said on the barbell of credit, you know, at one extreme you have more localized hard money kind of private credit. On the other extreme you have the disintermediation of the banks, if you will, large institutional quality, you know, $200 million EBITDA and up companies. And then in the middle, you have sort of what you describe as the middle market. From my perspective, I think one is better off at the two extremes. They certainly have different risk return profiles and there's certainly different ways to try to approach them. But from my perspective, getting caught in the middle might be the most problematic because that's where there's a higher preponderance of capital which means that you're going to get lesser terms. You also have what I believe to be broadly speaking, riskier cash flow oriented companies. So if it were me, I would opt to be at either end of the extreme of the barbell. I personally in this environment feel most comfortable being in the large cap, highly credible management teams, very defensive corporations or real estate for that matter where you have a little bit of more certainty and durability of the cash flows, because I think this is a de defensive environment. Whether you believe the Fed is going to start reducing rates in four months, six months, nine months, as we sit here today, I think defense is a very good offense. Torsen, one point I want to make clear is even at the middle market, it, it's a little bit nuanced because I think there's many middle markets. And if you have selectivity of credit, significant underwriting capabilities, and, and last but not least, and I think almost most importantly, a real origination edge, the middle market can still be a fertile ground. I'm more concerned with what I would characterize as the commoditized middle market, which would really be deals that are clubbed out, a lot of small groups joining together to do them, where you might start to see a degradation of credit quality, underwriting capability, and certainly lacking that origination uniqueness. I think in this environment, the critical competitive advantage is origination capability, what I would characterize as direct origination. So almost regardless if a company has 50 million or 100 million or 150 million of EBITDA, if you've got those core competencies and you've got the origination capability, it's still a very fertile ground. I think what happens is if you have all of those, plus you're at the large cap, then it's slightly an easier process. Well, that makes complete sense. So that was a lot about credit side. So let's now turn to the equity side of the equation. I mean, a lot of your views on valuations and opportunities in credit in general, do you see the equity risk premium in public markets today as being sufficiently attractive to peak investors' interest? I think it really is the lens that you look at it with. For me personally, I think in the short term, with all of the volatility and my belief that the Fed really is aiming at reducing asset prices, I think public market equities are, are one of those, quote, assets. And I look at myself as an individual investor, and it's very hard to get good access to it because the simplest way to do it would be through indices. And I think we're in an environment, frankly, where there's not really much competitive advantage for me as an individual investor to extract risk-adjusted returns. I listen to you all the time, some of the daily spark that you put out in the S&P 493 plus 7. People like me will, would often look at an S&P 500 index as a relatively inexpensive way to invest in the market broadly. But when you look at the multiples that the seven within the 500 are trading at, and you think about the, the lack of ability, in my opinion, to generate really good risk-adjusted returns, equities to me 
are challenging in this environment. There's not a lot of tailwinds, in my opinion, behind them. And, and so I, I don't really prognosticate on trying to time and, and, and perfectly time markets. I think all things equal, equities are particularly challenging. And that holds true for real estate and the broader market as well. It's not a bright line. It's not absolutely don't do it. It's just, I think it's a little bit more caveat emptor in, in this particular market. And from my perspective, credit is just a simpler thing to grasp. It's a simpler thing to understand that the other way I look at it is for the last 10 plus years, relatively cheap credit has been fueling equity valuations. I think it's hard to argue against that. I mean, real estate as an asset class is a very leveraged asset class. It's a very good example of how cheap credit has allowed a lot of real estate to be built and has allowed a lot of real estate to go up in value for year upon year upon year. In that case, it's called cap rates. It's the inverse of a multiple, but essentially multiples rising. When you have the Fed so adamantly trying to restrict that type of liquidity, you have to believe that it's a more challenging environment for equities and will continue to be. So my perspective is equities are acceptable, if you will, but on a risk-adjusted basis, I think credit is just much more attractive in this environment. Yeah, and given we had, uh, well, essentially 15 years of zero interest rates, and it created a huge significant boost to asset prices. Well, now we no longer have zero interest rates. So I completely agree the logic should be that should be then weighing on asset prices and putting downward pressure on asset prices. So with that backdrop, so just finally on the equity side, what other areas of equity markets are you keeping an eye on these days? Well, broadly speaking on the equity markets, active management is difficult in the public markets. I personally think that a lot of the most interesting opportunities that are in the private markets, so call them alternatives for lack of a better word. And there, what I look for is origination capabilities that create unique competitive advantage. And whether that's an expertise in a particular industry, whether it's an expertise in a broad set of industries, or it's simply a size and scale opportunity. But I think from my perspective, increasingly with time, I believed that kind of actively investing in the public markets for an individual, and I, I put myself as that individual, very challenging. So I, I went from deciding that active management was difficult to then believing that just broadly buying indices like the biotech index or the S&P 500 is also challenging. So I've migrated more and more to the use of alternatives, whether it be infrastructure or other types that I believe can generate interesting returns in this type of an environment. Maybe things will change in the future, but all the paths of investing, all of the indexing has made it, I think, very difficult. I mean, I haven't even mentioned the fact that the number of public companies has shrunk over the years, making the universe of investable public equities even smaller. There's a whole host of kind of idiosyncratic macroeconomics at play that make it much more challenging for an individual investor to sleep at night, feeling like they're getting the benefit of their bargain, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and let's turn to real estate. So let's start with the basics. I mean, well, first of all, what is a cap rate? And then second, what are your projections for cap rates? Cap rate is essentially an inverse of a multiple of the way people will think of EBITDA multiples. It's simply historically done in real estate. And if you think of a cap rate, you take the cash flow of a property or the EBITDA of a property and you divide it by the capitalization rate. Historically, those rates range from seven to 10%. And as I talked a little bit about before, the last 10 to 40 years, but we'll focus on the last 10 years, has been enormous tailwinds macroeconomically, which have led to those cap rates 
coming down and down and down to the point where in some asset classes like industrial multifamily, they were sub 4%, meaning the inverse of that is a 25 times multiple. People were paying voluntarily 25 times the cash flow of a property to purchase it. In my opinion, it's historically unsustainable. And here we are at that period of transition, the inflection point where cap rates are starting to progress upwards, i.e. multiples are coming down. The challenge is, I think, that right now, they're not reacting anywhere near quick enough. There's almost a delay, and as I said at the onset, the credit markets reacted almost instantaneously. The equity markets have been much slower to react, and, and a lot of that is going to be witnessed now over the forthcoming three years because you have an enormous maturity wall of credit, over a trillion three of credit coming due, maturing, that I think is gonna really test those cap rates and see what happens in valuation. So my personal view is that for the most part, valuations will suffer. They will be impaired. How much will depend on a bunch of factors. What is the asset class? Where is it in the United States? But broadly speaking, they're gonna be under significant pressure, in my opinion, over the forthcoming few years. Okay, and one area, of course, that you and I have talked a lot about, and that, of course, has gotten a lot of attention, is office and commercial real estate more broadly. There is, of course, a fear that we could have a slowdown in the economy, and we could therefore also have a continued slowdown in office and commercial real estate. What's your perspective on these critical issues? I've been saying for a while that between the tax cuts of about seven years ago, supplemented and augmented by coronavirus, there's been some fairly significant socio-demographic shifts in the United States that are not as evident in other parts of the world. And those shifts really simplify down to cost of living and quality of living. And I think more and more of the generations in the United States are focused on those two things in ways with which historically really weren't the case. I think a lot of people speak about remote work which certainly is a byproduct of that. I think to some extent that's overplayed and over-dramatized because I do think that people will ultimately want to return to an office environment. I think most employers will realize that people working together collectively is much better for the work product, for the workforce, for training, for retention. The challenge with that though is where do they actually go back to an office to work? Will it be in the historical gateway cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, or Washington? Or will it be spread more dynamically throughout the United States? And in particular, in lower cost of living, uh, higher quality of life perceived states, and we can use the Sun Belt as a, a bit of an example of that. My personal view is it's gonna be the latter, in that more and more full-time, high-paying professional jobs are going to rotate into non-gateway markets. And that's gonna have some implications for people who have historically looked at things through a lens of New York is the best, San Francisco is the best, Los Angeles is the best. I think beyond that, a lot of the other asset classes are actually quite healthy in the United States, multifamily, industrial, life sciences. You have, you have a lot of pockets of fairly good fundamentals. However, the challenge there is you have, in many cases, balance sheet challenges because so much of that real estate was financed in the last three or four years, you're gonna have maturity challenges and valuation challenges. So while the underlying cash flow is decent and the underlying fundamentals are decent, you're gonna come up against balance sheet constraints, which is also gonna create challenges. So I think that to the heart of your question, I would be very cautious around office broadly, 
I'd be somewhat cautious around historical gateway cities and thinking about them as havens. And then last but not least, I'd be very thoughtful around even the more durable asset classes and watching out for pressures on valuation because of the balance sheet challenges that they inevitably will face. Outside of those areas, I mean, real estate is, uh, is of course, a very broad spectrum of dimensions. What else are you looking at in the real estate space? What I look for are assets that are idiosyncratic or not necessarily macroeconomically tied directly to GDP growth. Yeah. And they give you some form of protection. Assets that have intrigued me and continue to intrigue me are hospitality in certain locations, particularly drive to in the Sun Belt. I've been a big believer in manufactured housing for the last seven or eight years. I continue to be. It has affordability that is compelling. It tends to proliferate in the Sun Belt, which I think has really good supply demand drivers, particularly since there hasn't been much supply of it. And secondly, things like cold storage. Cold storage tends to be driven more by population growth and food consumption than macroeconomic growth. So I think those are intriguing. Beyond that, I would say student housing in certain locations, although I'll tell you, colloquially, student housing is still extraordinarily expensive. It's still trading in most major markets for sub 5% cap rates, which is, in my opinion, very pricey in the environment that we're in. So while I still like multifamily and I like industrial, my view is that pricing has not really come in line with the macroeconomic reality that we're seeing. And so one has to still be a little bit patient. Okay, so let's wrap up our discussion of real estate with a more fundamental question. So from your perspective, I mean, where are we in the real estate cycle? In other words, when can investors expect the real estate asset class to really shine again? It's a great question. Interestingly, as your own charts will demonstrate, real estate is terrific in an inflationary market. So one would think that it's time to shine is today. I just don't know that it's ready yet because the preceding 10 years has created this fascinating environment where you've had such substantial cap rate compression to historic lows. You've had such a high level of newly issued debt that's now starting to mature that while you have the inflation protection embedded, you, you sort of have a starting point that I think is, is a little bit challenging and not ripe to allow real estate as a broad asset class. What I think you need to see is the next three years play out with slow repricing as more and more what's called price discovery happens. I don't think it's going to be a precipitous drop, but I think it will be a five to 10% type of drop. I think what you do is you focus more on the real estate credit in the short term. You can do some equity, but I would do a modest amount. And I think what you'll see is as rates start to reduce, as some of that debt starts to mature and the equity gets kind of reabsorbed, it'll start to become a more investing kind of oriented time for equity. That said, in the short term, if I was going to play more in the equity side, so to speak, what I would do is find that gap between credit and straight equity and do a bunch of preferred equity or subordinated credit. Because I think that over the next three years, there's going to be lots of opportunities to kind of provide gap financing there in the middle that might offer really interesting risk-adjusted returns. And so I think in the short term, that's where you play right in between what is today the equity and the credit, and then wait a little bit to start putting your capital into pure equity is what I would suggest. That's very interesting. 
Okay, so we're getting up towards the end here of our conversation. But before we wrap up, given everything that we have discussed, what are you observing in the market today in terms of capital deployment to private markets? As you talk to market participants, I mean, where is the money going? And do you agree with this direction? I think I'd broadly say that what I've been surprised about being on the road now for the last three, four months, talking to a lot of high net worth investors and their advisors, is that a lot of folks are coming to the realization that the historic portfolio allocation model may not be as durable as it historically has been. So there's an acknowledgement of that. There's an acknowledgement that as rates have risen, the correlation between equity uh, and credit is is higher than one would think, and, and you could actually suffer simultaneously, which I think is has become a little bit uncovered over the last five or six months. I think people are generally challenged with, okay, then what does one do? Alternatives is certainly an area where a lot of folks are looking at, and I think as I've been on the road, you, you have very differing degrees of how people utilize them um, and what they do with them. So what I've seen is a, a fairly high proliferation of people being in cash, a fair amount of people being in treasuries, generally short duration, two years and under, and then a spectrum of people that are using alternatives to try to fill some of those voids and capitalize on some of the other themes that you and I've been talking about. The folks that are using the alternatives, what I've seen is that the preponderance of them are credit oriented, which I do agree with. Some are starting to dabble in infrastructure, which I think is very interesting. I mean, infrastructure, even more so than real estate, tends to have more inflation protection in many respects because many of the underlying arrangements or leases or contracts tend to have full CPI escalators, whereas a lot of real estate does not have that. And there's certainly more time to extract the mark to market in rents. So I think that that's a very wise move in this environment. Given what's transpired on the real estate side, the private REITs have certainly not been as much demand. Public REITs have been in slightly more demand because their price reaction was pretty swift and quick and downward. So people are capitalizing on that perceived dislocation. But broadly speaking, I've seen mostly investors moving into things like private credit, infrastructure, and I think it's very wise and very sound. Well, thanks for that analysis, Philip. That's really interesting. So before we end, I want to introduce what has become a tradition here on our podcast. We call it a personal recommendation. That's basically a question about what you do when you're not focused on investing. This could be a book you're reading, a movie you've seen, cultural recommendation, hobby, your travels, really anything. What would your personal recommendation be for us today, Philip? Well, I, good question. I've been reading quite a bit. My recommendation, and I read predominantly nonfiction, and I and I try to read as if I were back in college and using this as a learning and growing. It's certainly a lot of reading about people. So what I would say is my recommendation would be three books that I've recently finished. The first is The Great Bridge. It's all about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge in the 1860s and 70s, wow. which I found absolutely fascinating. And then the last two were written both by Walter Isaacson, a biography on Da Vinci and one on Elon Musk. I would say that they were both fairly incredible and really well written. Even the Elon Musk, I mean, I know his story is not done. I mean, he's younger than I am and he's probably got a long life ahead of him, but I highly recommend people reading it because it's a kind of fascinating perspective on what it takes to do things that are almost the world, the road less traveled. And I think folks would find them interesting books. Interesting. Well, I live just next to the Brooklyn Bridge, so I will take your certainty off of that. That sounds really fascinating. I know it took a long time and there were a lot of thoughts going into how it should be constructed. So I'll definitely go and buy that book. Just as for me, 
I'm also mainly reading nonfiction, and I have more recently been reading a book by Alan Blinder about the monetary and fiscal history of the United States, which was about the independence of the Federal Reserve going back in time since the 1960s. To what degree has the Federal Reserve been influenced by politicians? There were a number of episodes, in particular in the 1960s with Arthur Burns, where there's been a lot of discussion about why didn't the Fed fight inflation more And these discussions comparing Arthur Burns and Paul Volcker in the 70s and with what, of course, we're seeing today is truly fascinating for thinking about what might happen in 2024. Will we have still inflation as a problem? Will the Fed really truly fight inflation until it comes down to 2%? And that does bring a lot of interesting points to this debate about what's happening over the year ahead. So with that... I really can't thank you enough, Philip. That's been a truly fascinating discussion. It's great to hear your views on the opportunities for investors today and learn more about your new role. Congratulations again. Torsten, I just really want to thank you for having me today. It's a, it's a treat and it's a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Thanks again for joining us, Philip. And thanks very much to everyone for listening in. This podcast was recorded November 22nd, 2023. Thanks for listening. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible, or by visiting ApolloAcademy.com, our educational website dedicated to alternative investing, where you can also sign up to have Torsten's Daily Spark economic blog delivered directly to your inbox. Once again, thanks for listening. Apollo Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. There can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature due to various risks and uncertainties. Actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof, or other variations thereon, or comparable terminology.